Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, city councilors at large Michelle Wu and Anissa Asayabi-George topped the field in Tuesday's preliminary Boston mayor's race. How did Greater Boston's Latino voters impact the election results? And as the Delta variant spreads, so too does disinformation about COVID among Spanish-language sites. Plus, National Hispanic Heritage Month kicked off last week, but critics say it needs a rebrand. That and more on our Latinx Roundtable. Later in the show, after a devastating breakup, a young woman returns to her hometown to reorient her life. I hope that you think about just giving your friends and more importantly yourself, cutting yourself a little more slack and just realizing we're all trying to do the best we can. And sometimes it looks really sloppy and that's just how life is. Author Beck Dory Stein knits together a story of love and friendship in her first novel, Rock the Boat. It is our September selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me now, Julio Ricardo Varela, Interim Co-Executive Director of Futuro Media Group, co-host of the In the Thick podcast, and founder of Latino Rebels. Welcome back, Julio. Hey, Callie. <laughs> so glad to have you. Also, making our first-time appearance on Under the Radar, Tibisai Zaya, Senior Reporter at El Planeta in Boston. Hello, Tibisai. Hi, Kelly. How are you? I'm very excited to be here. <laughs> and I'm glad to have you. So we're going to jump right into uh, this past week's preliminary elections with a specific focus on the Boston mayor's race. As many listeners will know, there were five candidates. Three of them were black, two black women, one black man in uh, John Barrows. Michelle Wu and Anissa Saiby-George were the other two candidates, and both of them ended up as preliminary victors, and they will go on to the November election, the final Now, some have said that they had an edge because both of them were at-large candidates and as such knew people across multiple neighborhoods. And um, so, of course, that that gave them a leg up in terms of name recognition and also voter support. However that came down, uh, the question was before uh, we got to the preliminaries and after, where would the Greater Boston Latino votes, understanding it's not a block. But before you two weigh in, let's hear from Boston Globe's Marcella Garcia speaking about just that. Latino voters are very persuadable and they are up for grasping. I think that is one of the things that we're, you know, coming back to the Boston mayoral election, I think that's one key takeaway right here. And, and polls have shown this that. Latinos are undecided, but that just tells you that they are up for grabs and that they are persuadable. But I would stay away from talking about Latin, the Latino electorate because that that assumes that it moves as a block, and it doesn't. Okay. So, Julio, take off from there. Yeah. I, do, can I get disappointed about sure. not having a city be engaged in a mayoral election? 
Yeah. Is that okay? Because this historic election where where you have essentially women and, you know, two black women and women of color. It, and I, I don't know about you, Callie, but I felt like I knew there was an election happening. I mean, I was around the city, but people didn't vote. And to step back, it kind of gets to what Marcella's saying. It's like, what would have happened if there was more of a strategy to understand that there's all these undecided voters? I mean, I look at um, one example that was really interesting looking at the results, Callie. Um, uh, Julia Mejia, who's an out-large uh, council, who's up-and-coming Latina uh, politician, uh, she actually got more votes, like, looking at than than some of the mayoral candidates, like, in the city council. Wow. Like, you know, she got, like, I'm looking at the numbers at, at large. She got, like, 38,000 votes. And and Michelle Wu got 35,000. And I'm sitting here going, did Mayor Janey, like, Mayor Janey, Andrea Campbell, you know, that did did this really happen? Like, was there something, or was it, you know what I mean? It's like, I, I feel incredibly disappointed. I thought we would see a city that was more engaged, sort of this new Boston. And in the end, I'm not necessarily sure. I feel like we're just in the same traditional, like, now we just have to have, now we just have women candidates of, you know, Michelle Wu and Esaibi George. I don't know. I just feel like we got back to traditional Boston politics, and it just happened to be two women candidates who weren't black. And so, well, I, I, you know what I'm saying? Yes, I don't think uh, a lot of people are on your page saying exactly the same thing, uh, particularly if you think about um, Anissa Sayabi George's general support coming from Dorchester and those environments and, you know, old Boston yeah. and Michelle Wu of a new Boston, then, then it does seem to fall into the regular pattern that we've seen over the years, even though the regular pattern prior to this... Um, was, you know, 91 years of, of white men holding the <laughs> exactly. post. Exactly. So I want to, um, Tibisai, I want you to weigh in on this, and I just want to lead in with this more positive take on it. Some have suggested that because the five of these candidates were so incredibly credentialed um, yeah. I, and and worthy to lead, that a lot of people said, you know what, any one of them is fine for me. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. I, I'm good. Mm, you know. Okay. So, Tibisai, you weigh in. Greater Boston Latino bo- voters specifically, but but you know, tell me what you think. Yeah, I kind of agree with Julio. I think I feel there was a general lack of interest in the in these mayoral elections uh, among the Latino community. We were covering the race. Uh, aggressively, and people were just uh, not reading for some reason. Uh, maybe, of course, we had a lot of news uh, about the pandemic, and then we had the summer, uh, so it's kind of understandable. But, you know, Latinos, I think they have a story of coming up together and electing people that uh, will serve their community. And I think uh, they're looking for someone who is uh, talking about the things that matter to them. And many of the candidates were. So I think that's one of the reasons they were undecided, because all of them were, as you said, they they were all good candidates. They were prepared. They were people of color. So I think, uh, for example, I think it was crucial for Wu to gain the Latino support. Uh, She was the only candidate that was supporting rent control. And I right. think this is a measure that it, this is huge for the Latino community. Yes. Uh, uh, housing affordability. And um, yeah, 
What do you think? I, I was going to say this is an opportunity, right? Now you have two candidates. And I'm, I'm, it'll be very interesting to see what happens from now until November. Um, I do think Michelle Wu's campaign has um, an advantage because they did do some outreach, right? But I also think it's a strategy, right? If if they kind of knew that they just needed to be first or second, why are you gonna like? Why are you gonna overspend when you kind of already knew that you were gonna win? It'll mm-hmm. be very interesting now, and 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 I, I agree with you. I, I agree with the notion of are there issues that pertain to the Latino community in the case of the pandemic, like rent control, unemployment, um, you know, education, things that that have impacted the community, uh, particularly in neighborhoods like East Boston. I mean, I was just in East Boston this week, but you know, my uh, and and that that is a you know, we go there and you go, wow. This is an incredibly like Spanish speaking Latino neighborhood. If someone actually came in and said, we're going to put our flag in here and going to begin to like outreach so we can get past 25 percent voter turnout, whatever it was, it was so low. I think it's an opportunity. There's so many votes out there in this city. And um, I think you're going to see that. Maybe you'll start seeing more of a, a concerted effort. Okay, so let me do a follow-up to you both about this, because speaking of Julia Mejia, she gathered together a group of Latino politics leadership folks yeah. and had real conversation about, listen, let's let's get it together here and exert our power, you know, so that we can be uh, even more powerful in terms of getting people in these seats and... Uh, if not voting as a block per se, but but making sure, as Tibisai, you just said, our issues are always on the table. So does this, Tibisai, mean that there will we will see going up to the November election more power positioning by uh, Latinos in the as it regards to this race? Do you do you think we'll see more of that? I hope so. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and. Yeah, I, I think uh, what really predicts political participation is a shared sense of group identity that is under threat in some way. For instance, it can be the risk of deportation or the risk of displacement or, you know, all, all these issues. And when addressing the Latino community, of course, you need to understand these issues, but also how to engage uh, people. Uh, if you think of yourself as Mexican or Cuban and you look back to your country, uh, usually you're less likely uh, to vote. But if you think, oh, uh, I'm here yeah. now, I'm part of this larger group, then you are more likely to vote. So I think they need to find the commonalities between our community. I think that's going to be the success. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, look at Julia Mejia, right? Mm-hmm. Second at-large city council, top vote, you know, in second, right? Michael Flaherty usually, you know, gets got the top slot, but she came in second. And she got right. thir- she got thirty more than thirty eight thousand votes, which is about uh, you know fourteen percent. Which she came in second, and I actually think you need to watch what Mejia what Mejia is doing because I do think this is the the foundation of the Latino political power that we're all kind of been searching for or looking for or understanding that it's here, and and you can only prove it by the votes. The votes are the votes, you know. 
Julia Mejia did a fantastic job in this in this election. I'll, I'll put a button on this conversation and say to you that uh, Julia Mejia will let you know what she is doing at all times. Absolutely. <laughs> and, I, and so people, you know, I know I'm saying I'm, I'm, I'm just saying it, as you were speaking, I realized, wow, I really know what she's doing a lot. <laughs> she's yeah. on top of that. So that had to pay off in this election. Uh, because if I know, and I'm sort of vaguely on the side, you know, not deeply paying attention, but I'm paying attention enough to know that she's letting me know <laughs> what's going on. Exactly. Uh, she's got a she's she's got a solid foundation. I know no shame in her game. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with our Latinx roundtable guests. Julio Ricardo Varela of the Futura Media Group, and Tibisai Zaya of El Planeta. All right, let me uh, move to a to a topic that uh, could prove to play out in any elections, and certainly is going to be important for all of us. And that's we're still grappling with COVID and all of its issues. But one thing I did not know was that there was a uh, I knew that there was a disinformation campaign aimed at everybody. But I didn't know there was one specifically aimed at Spanish language outlets. Uh, That was surprising to me. And of course, if you don't speak Spanish, you perhaps, you know, are unaware of this. And apparently it's pretty robust. So this is uh, Louis Morales. He's the founder and leader of the evangelical church Vida Real Internacional. It's headquartered in Medford, Massachusetts. And here he is spreading misinformation on Facebook. Y lo más seguro es que esta vacuna incluye algo que se va a ir directamente al testículo del hombre y lo va a, a, a castrar para que no haya reproducción. Porque el objetivo final acá es que ya vemos más de 8 billones en este planeta y ya se calcula que 8 billones se reproducen tremendamente. Okay, so he said that um, coronavirus vaccines can cause male infertility and this is a conspiracy. This is not true. Just want to say that again, that it, it's part of a conspiracy to reduce the world's population of Latinos who he claims are reproducing at higher rates than other ethnic groups. Wow. Is he t- hanging out with Nicki Minaj these days? I, d- I don't know. <laughs> yeah, she and he probably. Uh, but that, along with Tibisai, your piece that you did uh, sometime uh, in May about uh, Latino evangelicals uh, really fomenting this misinformation was really quite surprising to me. Yeah, and this guy is is right here in Medford. Um, So, you know, the pandemic hit hard on Latinos. We all know that. Uh, They were twice as likely as, you know, white adults to contract the virus and also more likely to die from it. And many essential workers are Latinos and and. They have the lowest vaccination rates here in the United States, and we need to understand what's happening. So I think Latinos have also been subject to widespread misinformation uh, due to the social media platforms, sort of lack of ability to accurately uh, detect misinformation written in Spanish. And this is Mm. a great example. We're talking about a guy who has 300,000 followers in YouTube, wow. making a lot of money out of his videos, and his YouTube channel was blocked just for a week. And then wow. he continued uh, you know, uh, spreading these messages 
uh, not even in YouTube, but also in Facebook and and here in his church. So, uh, you know, po politics plays a role. Evangelical religion is growing all over Latin America. And we already know that a good number of evangelicals like uh, uh, the Republicans because they support anti-abortion measures. So politics, of course, plays a, a role. But also, uh, as Latinos, we tend to mistrust governments uh, because, you know, yeah. we feel like they have failed us so many times. Um, so I think it's, it's just natural. And, and if you add mistrust and misinformation, that's a complicated mix. Mm. Yeah, it's yeah. Um, there's a lot here, and and, and this evangelical is just one example. Um, there's you know there's a great piece in NBC News about in Miami, which has its own issues because I do think part of this is political. Like we need to mm -hmm. understand that it's not just the community, but this is coming from mostly conservative evangelical voices in the Latino community, which also has you know it's a growing trend in Latin America. Um, I've kind of gone down the rabbit hole of, you know, who's, you know, the Latin American Ben Shapiro and all those. They're all out there. I mean, they're all out there and it's happening. But I can I just put now now I'm like Callie. Can I put a positive spin? Can I share a little positive okay, information? Sure. Because part of this is also like going back to Latinos are not a monolith. There's actually good information. I just want to give a specific example because I've actually been looking at numbers out of Texas and out of the um, the border region in the Rio Grande Valley, and some of the highest vaccination rates in no, actually the highest vaccination rates in Texas, and we're talking 70, 75, 80 percent. When you think of Texas, it's like don't go to Texas, COVID surge, are on the border, hmm. and that's where the majority, you know. <laughs> These are majority Latino counties. I'm talking about El Paso and Mission, Texas. So I, I think there's a lot here. I do tend to believe it's a little bit more political and conservative and it's cultural. It's the growing evangelical movement. It's not only mistrust in institutions like the government, it's mistrust in institutions like the Catholic Church. Mm. And so, you know, when you start seeing that the Catholic Church is starting to maybe lose some of its grip, on Latin American and Latino culture in the United States, and you have these evangelicals showing up and completely untested, and to to you know to the point of the fact that Tibisai is saying, who's checking these guys? Like we can barely check these guys in English, right? And there's right. no, I mean, the fact checking in the media dedicated to English language is is just humongous compared to Spanish language f fact checking in the United States, which is so minuscule. And and then you and then you take like a, a media market like Miami where there's so it's like Callie if you think of like talk show I mean Miami talk show radio is just just in, it's crazy there's mm. so many voices so and these people go unchecked and and because it's in, and 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 the other thing is because it's in Spanish you're already trusting it right yeah. right to beside yeah. because it's like I'm a Spanish speaker I'm not gonna listen to the English language broadcaster but I'm gonna listen to like crazy conspiracy guy in Spanish. And, you know, even the way, I'll say the last thing about this evangelical person, the way he even presented the infertility thing was like, oh yeah, that makes, that might make sense. It wasn't, he just came across as like, I'm a, I'm in a position of authority. I'm a man of faith and I'm going to tell you a lie. Wow. And, and people are going to be like, lot. oh, that's, that's a lot. So it is an, it is a big issue. And the fact that it's happening here in Medford, 
Okay. Okay. I'm a, wow. Yeah. Well, all right. Speaking of political, uh, President Biden has named um, or put up for nomination three Latino nominees most recently. In total now of his uh, judicial nominations, he's eight are Latino. The three most recent are Gabrielle Sanchez, who would serve on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, David Herrera Urias, and Hernan Vera for federal district uh, courts. Now, I mentioned this because, A, Biden was criticized initially about not being as careful in terms of making sure that his appointments were as diverse as they could be. But also, this is a court system, and um, there's never been a whole lot of uh, Latino folks on in these positions, and it's critically important. Julio. Yeah, it is. And there's so much of a gap. You know what I mean? This is it's hard. It's very easy to just say, well, you know, I let's applaud the Biden administration for doing this. They should be. But this should be second nature by now. It's 2021. You know, Latinos are close to 20 percent of the U.S. population. Um, we're un- underrepresented in give me an industry. We're underrepresented. Maybe baseball. We're not that underrepresented in professional baseball, but, but, um, but that's what, you know, it, it needs to be changing. It needs, you know, it needed to happen, uh, decades ago, but I think it goes back to the original thing that we were saying during the mayoral race discussion is that power is evolving in the community and it hasn't been established. And I think you're starting to see these pockets of, of influence and power, but it's nowhere near the level that it needs to be. And and I and and we're seeing that, you know, this has been a you know, you and I have had this conversation over the years, Kelly. It's we're seeing it happen in front of our faces right now. Like we are living the moment. And so I'm always encouraged by positive developments by any administration to kind of say, okay let's let's keep pushing this rock up the hill or the stone or whatever. And and, but there's still a lot of pushing that needs to get done. Exactly. TV side, you want to just weigh in a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So I think. uh you know, Latino representation has always been an issue. And I think it's uh, critically important to have representation, not only because, you know, these people are decision makers, but also because we need roles. That way, you know, people, young Latinos uh, can identify with these people and, and say, okay, I can, I can be, for example, a Latino woman um, I can be in a position of power. Mm-hmm. You're right. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Julio Ricardo Varela of the Futuro Media Group and Tibisai Zaya of El Planeta. We're talking about the latest Latinx news you may have missed. All right. Well, you know what? All of this could be raised up and highlighted during this time because on September 15th, going through October 15th, is... Hispanic Heritage Month. We're in the middle of it. Here we You're go. In the middle of it. It, uh, <laughs> it was uh, established in 1988 when Ronald Reagan signed a bill to extend a week-long celebration, National Hispanic Heritage Week, and made it into a month. Here's a clip from Nickelodeon's Hispanic Heritage Month original song. Like Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera, we paint a picture, the world stops instead. Come alive. 
Now that's so upbeat, but there are some people <laughs> saying. I was dancing. I know, me too. Uh, there are some people who are saying that Hispanic Heritage Month needs a rebrand. For one thing, some people are now referring to it as Latino Heritage Month. But just want to get your, y'all's take. Does yeah. it need a rebrand? Well, I'm going to start with a positive note. Yay! <laughs> I th- so I think celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month is fundamentally a good thing as a way, you know, to celebrate us, our influence and our contributions, but especially uh, to find our commonalities in a pretty, uh, you know, diverse community. And uh, of course, we can be labeled as a singular community. This has always been a challenge because identity for us is is very complicated. Uh, In addition to the fact that we come, you know, from different countries with different food, traditions, words, music. It's not the same as second generation Latino than an immigrant, for example. And even between immigrants, it's different if you emigrated when you were 10 years old versus you emigrated when you were uh, 30 or, or, or 60, as my parents recently did, or if you crossed the border or came here with a sponsored green card. So also you have different races among Latinos. So it's an incredible diverse community and all these things make identity so difficult for us. But I think, you know, despite all that, uh, I think we need to unify as a force because that's what we are in this country, an economical and political force that is growing everywhere. So I think uh, it's uh, it, this uh, Hispanic Heritage Month becomes uh, as, as an opportunity for us to find our communalities. Okay, Julio? Yeah, I think there's something there about I you know, there there are there's sort of this push to quote unquote cancel it, right? But right. I actually think it's more the word cancel is not the right word here. It's it's actually to challenge it and to make it better, mm-hmm. to improve upon it. You know, I I agree. I I think it it's the one time in the year where the mainstream of the United States actually gives us a space and 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 knows that we exist. So I don't want to, you know, considering that we're such an underrepresented community to begin with, to begin with I don't want to lose that, right? Because that's like an opportunity to kind of get into the challenging of it. So I actually think that you can be unified and continue to question internally our own messiness, our own issues that have to do with race, and privilege and uh, anti-blackness. And I think what's happened, you know, since, quote unquote, the racial transformation of, you know, during the pandemic that, you know, I, I, I still believe that there's these questions are still coming out. They're probably not at the same level. But what I have noticed the last couple of years in our community is more of that honest talk. You know, more of the fact that, you know, we've brought our our own racial baggage into this U.S. experiment that we are a part of now. And, you know, we have to admit, we have to acknowledge the fact that representation in the Latino community is whiter, um, more privileged, um, overlooks black Latinos, overlooks indigenous Latino voices. But one of the things that, you know, in the work that I do and seeing it, and, and interviewing and, and, and reporting and publishing contributors, 
is technology and social media and digital media has allowed to flatten that. So now you start seeing those voices get elevated more. And we just have to constantly be intentional about this is how we feel we should represent ourselves as a community. And we should not have it imposed. Because if you look at the history of, you know, you know, if you look at the history of the quote unquote term Hispanic, it was it, it was an imposed term. It was an imposed term from the 70s and the 80s because there's, you know, 20 plus countries and they're trying to figure us out. And the U.S. government wants to, like, box us all in into a census label. And the whole issue. And we're like, what are we? we white, Latino, black. I don't know. And and actually, I'm hopeful because the 2020 census actually has begun to look at that messiness. And I think for the first time in the history of this country, we actually have a more accurate representation of the Latino community being more multi multiracial, multi-ethnic. Um, you know, that 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 gives me hope. But I this is, again, like anything in America, it's an ongoing experiment. But it's uh, so therefore even better to have a month to discuss all these issues exactly and highlight and whatever exactly I will, I will note that target for the first time um i mean i think they've always had some items but tied to uh latino or hispanic heritage month however you are saying it they have a uh, a new initiative called Mosque, more than okay so this is their marketing campaign they've made 80 items in support of hispanic heritage month and they're very excited about it from kids to adults um i thought that that's you know when you start to get really really commercialized that's a sign that yeah that i mean it's you know we're <laughs> just like happening. exactly like if you look at you know black history month i mean exactly I, i'm sure kelly the same conversations oh, were being had about like what what's our identity what are oh, we, we have doing? it every year who's We've selling out who's not commercial <laughs> i kind of that's like an american experience i want latinos to have this conversation because that means that we're kind of here so i'm i'm down Okay, and uh, Tibisai, if you go to Target and get your shirt, I'm not going to say anything about it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to let you slide. <laughs> All right, I got to squeeze in this story that I'm thrilled about. The woman who portrayed Maria on Sesame Street has a new animated preschool series, which is created by Sonia Manzano for PBS, and it's called Alma's Way. So before I get you guys to weigh in on it, here's a clip from the theme song of PBS's Alma's Way TV show. So many questions, so much to explain. Oh. Figure it out as you hop on the six train. Oh. Well, Mommy, Papi, Junior, and I will only hang set. I'll take it through and share it with you. Come on, let's go! Man, okay, such, Tiba said that is great, just too cute. It's great music, it. this this on this show, Callie. It's awesome. <laughs> but is that the cutest? I just love this. Yeah. Me <laughs> please too. don't please don't tell me there's something negative about it because I just love it. <laughs> anyway, it highlights a six-year-old Puerto Rican girl. These are fictional characters who lives in the Bronx with her parents, younger brother Junior, her abuelo, and their dog Chacho. And it's inspired by Sonia's own childhood. And again, she was. Maria from Sesame Street. So full circle. Yeah, it, it is. There should be 20 of these shows. Just exactly. Saying. You know, exactly. Let's, let's be honest. It's like, you know, I'm I'm a big Dora the Explorer. I mean, I come from the oh, Dora the Explorer. Because, you know, yes. because I had my kids grew up with Dora. And I, I still like Dora to me is like an OG. And I love Alma. But I, I think now it's time to, you know, this is what I mean about the, the monolith and the regionalism. 
so we got a Puerto Rican character in the Bronx, and I now want to see a Chicana in, in Los Angeles or, you know, um, or a Salvadoreño in Arizona or things like that. You know, that it, let's begin to just not – I'm try, I, don't take this as a negative comment. No, Kelly, I'm not. Like, I'm not. Like, I, I think like, you're let's right. Not, let's not just East Coast this. Like, we have to – and let's not just base it in Miami. Let's go out. You know, the fastest growing sector of Latinos in this country is the South. So think mm-hmm. about that. So no, I'll leave you with right. that. But I love Alma's way. No, I think that's I, I think you're uh, dead on with that. I just was. And I, we also have to, in a reality situation, have to realize here is a woman who had more access than most to finally get through a project that might. You and know, she was Maria in the 70s. This is what I'm saying. saying. <laughs> that's yeah, what I'm saying. I, I know what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tibisai, what do you think? <laughs> yeah. But by the way, do you watch Vivo? No, I don't know what is that a kids oh, show? That, too? Vivo on Netflix, yeah, that no. was a, that was a Lin Manuel Miranda, right? Animation, right? Animation, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, okay. and he's picturing a Cuban with an actual uh, real Cuban accent. Wow. Yeah, yes. which I think is great because you know many times when when they cast Latinos, they don't take accents into consideration, and I think it's yep. critical. Oh, that's really so. So it started some of this um, being very specific and unique. There's more coming, I guess. That's a that, yeah. You know, so when so when you play this back in a couple of years, Callie, you're gonna be like, "Wow, Julio predicted this." Well, you know, I, I think uh, no. I I will say that I also think that it it helps when there are products like Dora the Explorer going back Absolutely. to that. Absolutely, because I read that to lots of kids. So you know, on the elbows. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I mean, and a lot of kids, by the way, learned Spanish because there was enough Spanish in there for oh, kids yeah. to get interested. Yeah. You know, Dora's so. comfort food for me. Dora, like if Dora the Explorer is on, I'm I'm in. And I'm exactly. like, a... anyway. <laughs> well, as always, uh, the two of you were great to to talk to. And Tiba Sai, so wonderful to have you on your first, but certainly not last uh, time with us on Under the Radar. So I thank you both for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Julio Ricardo Varela is Interim Co-Executive Director of Futuro Media Group, co-host of the In the Thick podcast and founder of Latino Rebels. Tibisai Zaya is senior reporter at El Panetta in Boston. Coming up, Kate Campbell was the epitome of the successful millennial New York City career woman, happily planning a future with the love of her life. But a devastating breakup imploded all those plans and sent her back to the small town where she grew up. Beck Dory Stein's novel, Rock the Boat, explores Kate's journey as she re-envisions her future. Rock the Boat is our September selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.